Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the show. We got a great one today. First, we're going to be talking about the big D, and I don't mean Dallas, and I don't mean that either. We're talking about vitamin D and all the things that you need to know about it. Next, we're going to have Wound Care 101. And finally, is my gas stove trying to kill me? We're going to talk about it right now on Nip Talk. Live from Lincoln Center in the heart of the Dallas Metroplex, this is Nip Talk. An honest and uncensored show about plastic surgery, health, beauty, and lifestyle. With your host, plastic surgeon Dr. Bruce Herman, and your co-host, entrepreneur and social media influencer Sarah Bennett. Now it's time to discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of the topics everyone is talking about. It's time for Nip Talk. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, plastic surgeon, Dr. Bruce Herman. With me as always, co-host, Sarah Bennett. Hey. In the box is the man and the legend, Trelvis. What's up, man? What's happening? What's happening? Not much. How you been? Good. Happy Friday to y'all. I know. That's why I love doing the show, because it means it's Friday. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like the greatest thing. You do the show, and then you got the whole weekend. Right. You we did. made it. It's a good thing. We made it through. So, do y'all have good weeks? Yeah. I did. Yeah? Anything exciting? Now, I know you got this new, new gig you're doing. Yeah. It's good. I'm um, yeah. just juggling. Yeah. Making things work. I mean, that's you, life. You and I are kind of the same way. We have like all of these like side hustles we do. So yeah. it's like we're just kind of all getting pulled. You gotta, you gotta figure out what uh, is a priority like every yeah. day. <laughs> I know. Like what's the priority today? It like fluctuates. I hear you. Yeah, I feel the same way because like you know it's like of course the show's on Friday and then maybe the beginning of the week and more like getting all my you know surgery schedules and stuff done mm -hmm. and making sure all the clinics are taken care of and then as it creeps into the weeks like oh i gotta start like planning for the show yeah. and you know making up segments and getting pictures and videos and yeah i get it we're super here how's your youtube thing going i are you still doing that a lot <laughs> yeah i'm trying to figure out if i want to do it anymore i was what? like you have yeah. to keep doing it. You have like so I gotta find. I, I gotta. I think I'm gonna find like an editor. See an some, editor. Oh, okay. To see see some prices on that because I'm sure like a video for me like maybe a 10 or 15 minute video is like a max for a video that I make. Uh huh. And so I'm like, I think an, a seasoned like video editor could probably push an, a out. video out probably like in one hour. Yeah, and probably it would, so. It takes me like. I can actually, okay. <laughs> um, I'll have to introduce you to the people that kind of do some of my editing for me. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know uh, what they would charge for something like that, but they're really, really good. It's yeah. that paired up. Uh, okay. I think you've met Kaylee before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's great. But Well, I, I'd hate to see you not do it anymore. I, I actually I watch know. your, I, I get on and I watch your episodes when I, when I see My daughter up. watches them a lot. Your daughter. Because she loves yeah. them. She loves, because she's, I'm Well, because she's in it, right? Yeah. yeah. And she's like, we're not making them anymore. And I'm like, I don't <laughs> she's know. She's heartbroken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think she liked telling people that her mom is a YouTuber. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I bet that's really exciting for her. Now, Travis, now you, your your voice is kind of hoarse. I, I heard you. <laughs> you were like yelling at your show. What were you guys talking about, man? So there was a parade that happened. Uh, what was it? Monday. It was a parade that happened Monday, and okay. now my voice is like really hoarse. Oh, you were on the float. Yeah, I was on the float. I forgot you. Yeah. So how was it? And like like a smart guy, I was yelling to people instead of like using the microphone. It was oh. dope. It was really cool. <laughs> it was really cool. That's pretty awesome, man. Yeah, I enjoyed yeah. it. I felt like a, a beauty queen just in, in my little way. <laughs> hey, everybody. <laughs> oh, that's really cool, man. Absolutely. Right Absolutely. How your week been? Uh, it's been good, just working, and I think I told you guys I'm like considering buying a building. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. and you so did. we're still going through that process, which I'm really excited about uh, because right now I rent and it's kind of you know just like 
throwing money away a little bit. Did you so. find a spot? Yeah, we Are did. You still with the same dude that you're yeah. doing? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good it's a good friend of mine. He's a surgeon, uh, Dr. Tim Larson. does orthopedics and hand surgery, and we've known each other for like 10 years. And he's a really good guy, and he's looking to like uh, buy his own building. So we're going to go in together, I think, and get something. Or we're working on it. Like right we're on. working on a deal right now. Yeah. Right so, but that's kind of taking up a lot of time because we're you know, thinking about like how we're going to have to improve the building and who's going into what space. And so, yeah, that has been kind of consuming me a little bit for the past couple of weeks, but it'll be worth it. Yeah, I, it definitely will be worth it. So, but it's just like, you know, it's one more plate. I'm like <laughs> trying to spin, but Hey, that's what it is. Like, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm one of those people, like if I don't have stuff to do, like I don't feel right, you know, yeah. like if I just had to like go and do like my surgery practice, I'd be like probably getting in trouble. Cause I, you know, idols hands or the devil's playground. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. But anyway, so I got that. And I do want to mention, Sarah, I love your outfit. Like, that jumpsuit oh, is, like, you. really awesome. Like, Thanks. I was, you, you know, you remind me of, like, Kelly McGillis from, like, Top Gun. Or, like, <laughs> like, you're about to, like, jump into a fighter plane or something. I mean that it in a good have, way. It would have looked even better if I was wearing my combat boots. That's usually Oh, right. With it. Now, did you sell that at your store? Yeah, I oh, sold man. it. was one of my first jumpsuits I sold whenever I first was there. Was there, like, a season that jumpsuits were really, like, in, or are they just kind of always in? Um... I think uh, the past couple of years they've dropped off a little oh, bit. Have they? Um, I just remember rompers. I don't rompers like little shorts. Yeah, I wasn't Those a big were fan really of that. In style. Um, I right now it's overalls have been really in right oh, now. Oh yeah, I have the seen the overalls are back. And we had you did a segment and we saw a bunch mm -hmm. of the overalls. Yeah. So that's kind of back, but I feel like uh, jumpsuits. They're, they're in still, but they're just not as prevalent. They're kind of like a, especially this type of jumpsuit, it's like a never goes out of style. Nice. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's easy to wear. Yeah. I was like, what am I going to wear today? It looks good though. Like, I, I, I like what's different. Today. Like, it's different from your normal style. And yeah. I was like, oh, wow, look at Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of felt the same way. I had a little bit of time after I got yeah, to doing surgery. Yeah, I dressed up a little bit today. This is kind of like what I dress up like normally. It's like, mm -hmm. Vintage tee and like a jacket, That's jeans. That's your going out attire. Yeah, kind of going out. Yeah, not like super fancy going out, but maybe like you know. That's what you. That's what you wore. That's what you usually wear, like. Going out on the square. Yeah, this is a good like going out Chill. to the square. Kind I do of. like yeah. the Run DMC shirt. Oh, thanks. Too. Yeah, so this yeah. is a uh, 1988 uh, Run DMC tour shirt, like Tough original shirt. Leather. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> I love Run DMC. I was a huge fan because like I was like let's see in '88 I was like you know 13 or 14 years old. I still watch his uh, reality show. Oh really? Mm -hmm. yeah. Rev Run. Uh, yeah, I didn't. Run's I didn't ever house. see it. But, yeah. But I love Run. <laughs> and he would always at the end of the episodes he'd sit in his yeah. bathtub. <laughs> Took yeah. a bubble bath. I was just like, oh. I need to pick this shirt up. At, <laughs> Go ahead and wrap this episode. I may have got this at the Vagabond Vintage there. Oh, at Vagabond. You know Vagabond? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you? I recently heard of them. Yeah, so there's one in Denton, like right where oh, uh, Sarah and I live, and then there's oh, one nice. in Dallas and one in mm -hmm. Fort Worth. I go there like literally. We're trying all to get them to do the wine tour. Oh, they yeah. should. You know, I know those guys really well. In fact, when they get shirts, they just text me and they're like, <laughs> oh. hey, we got some shirts that we know that you're going to Well, next time you go, tell me you're Cassie. Yeah, who do you talk to over there? Oh, we haven't. We haven't. Oh, you don't know the names? Yeah, we. So Tony is like there. the manager of that store. Oh. Uh, I can text him for you, but yeah. I love Vagabond. Yeah, if you live in Dallas and like vintage clothing, there's... Because it's right next to Steve's Wine Bar, right? Uh, it's right next to the axe throwing and the vinyl... Vinyl, vinyl lounge. lounge. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Where's Steve's? Isn't that across the street? Uh, yes, it's cross street. Yeah. Because yeah. we need more people over there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's Vagabond too in Dallas and Fort Worth. Uh, Travis, if you ever want to hit. I him got up. you. Yeah. I did, I know the one in Dallas. I didn't know it was yeah. in Fort Worth. We got a good um, got a good location uh, uh, like topic, I guess, for the show just now. 
Yeah, right. People yeah, can if you kinda live like, in Dallas, yeah. check out these places. Yeah, so. Exactly. All right. Uh, so I'm gonna move on to the first segment. Yeah. And of course, you know, I'm always like looking at like what's in the news. And so actually, my wife suggested this. Thanks, Cindy, if you're watching. Um, she suggests we do a topic about vitamin D um, because like it is in the news like so much. And I didn't really realize that, but when I did a search for like vitamin D like news articles, like it was just like like just like pages and pages like just from this week. And so, um, you know, I remember a little bit about vitamin D from med school, but I, I'm not sure everybody knows, you know, all the basics about vitamin D. So I want to kind of just talk about it. Um, so what is vitamin D? So it's a fat soluble vitamin that helps the body absorb both calcium and phosphorus. And mm -hmm. uh, it, you may or may not know that calcium and phosphorus are really important for bone formation. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, vitamin D helps with uh, reducing cancer cell growth if people have cancer. It helps fight infection. It also reduces inflammation. So it's, okay. a, it's a pretty important vitamin. So the big question is, you know, how do we get vitamin D? Well, there's three ways you can get vitamin D. One is the sun, one is foods, and the third way is supplements. And so I brought some questions for you guys. I know when you love, I know you love questions. Yes, yes, yes. All right. So, all right, Travis, throw up the first question. All right. So, and I, I did not know the answer to this question myself. So I'm not sure I would have gotten this right. But how much sun exposure in, in a day do you need to get your total allotment of vitamin D? So you oh, think it's wow. 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, or two hours? Who wants to go first? Uh, I'll go first. All right, Travis, lay it on us. Um, I'll say A. 15 minutes. Sarah? Um, B. 30 minutes. Okay, Travis, you're right. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, so That's it's a... about 10 to 15 minutes. Now, that does vary by, like, how intense the sun is. That 15 minutes is just kind of like an average amount, but it, mm -hmm. but it needs to be like 10 to 15 minutes of like pretty like direct, like midday sunlight. And so I thought it was going to be more, I, I didn't realize it was that small of amount. So, you know, but the thing is, is nowadays, you know, people say stay out of the sun and cover up. And right. so, you know, it's potential that people could not be getting enough vitamin D from the sun. Also, if it's winter or if you like live in a place that's really cloudy, like, yeah. you know, Seattle or Portland or whatever, um, or if you just avoid the sun. So also there's a follow-up question in that. Travis, throw up the next one, will you? So if all things being equal, what group out of these four is more at risk for vitamin D deficiency? Is it Caucasians, Asian, Hispanic, or African-American? I'll say D, African-American. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah. You'd be absolutely right. And mm -hmm. the reason for that is the darker your skin tone is, right. it acts like shade to those um, molecules that create the vitamin D. Oh. And so if you're, if you're very fair, then you, your body makes vitamin D easier than if you have a darker skin tone. So yeah. in general, African-Americans have to be a little bit more aware of if their, you know, vitamin D levels are good enough. So, I've heard that too. Yeah. Did you yeah. know that? Oh, I wow. I've very good. That. I actually didn't, I didn't know that either. Like I learned a lot, like just going over, I probably knew this stuff when I was like in, you know, med school, but just a little rusty. Well, it's like, you know, I'm a plastic surgeon, so I'm not like talking to you about, oh, is your vitamin D levels okay before you come get this liposuction or whatever? <laughs> yeah. like, but I remember, you know, bits and pieces from med school, yeah. but, uh, you know, refreshing my, my memory was good. Okay. So, uh, so we said you can get it from the sun mm -hmm. and food sources. So I listed out the food sources that have good vitamin D. And, um, a lot of these I, re I remembered fish is really high in vitamin D. And so, mm -hmm. Like where it says salmon, like that's 66% of your daily value of vitamin D can come from salmon. Uh, can of tuna, 35%. I don't know who eats sardines and herrings. I guess maybe in England or something. But you can get 25 to 27. My dad loved sardines. I, I remember eating them when I was a kid, but I don't even know if you can buy them around here anymore. No, you can. I don't know. You can. Can you? Okay. 
Uh, <laughs> cod liver oil, a teaspoon, will yeah. give you 50% of your vitamin D. So like an egg or egg yolk, 5%. Mushrooms is the only non-animal product food that I could find that actually provides vitamin D, and it's a fair amount. A serving of mushrooms can give you 17% of your daily uh, vitamin D. Cow or soy milk, 15%. Fortified cereal or oatmeal can have up to 15%. Fortified OJ, 12%. And fortified cheeses up to 10%. So, well, actually, the cheeses don't have to be fortified. Well, I think they are fortified, some of them are, because I've seen cheese packets to say with extra calcium, or with extra vitamin D, sorry. Yeah. Um, so anyway, those food sources can help supplement you if, if you're not out in the sun a whole lot. Um, so what is vitamin D deficiency? I think I got one more question up here. All right. So there is a disease that comes about from vitamin D. <laughs> Herpes, is that your answer, Sarah? No, I'm just kidding. No. Um, so is it scurvy, rickets, impotence, or herpes? I think, Travis, you're up. Um, or I can't remember who's up. I think scurvy is like a pirate's disease or something it like is. that. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to say B. Rickets? Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Besides, that's the only one I don't know what it means, I guess. I'm just going to say A. Scurvy. Okay, so I will tell you, the answer is B, rickets. Scurvy <laughs> is a deficiency of vitamin C. You're okay. right about it being a pirate's disease. Scurvy was something that sailors and pirates got because they couldn't get vitamin C. And so, yeah, have you ever heard the term limey, like a British person? Like limey? A limey, L-I-M-E-Y. Limey? You guys haven't heard that? Okay. I have not. I've so it's like that. a slang term for a British person, a limey. The reason they were called limeys is the British Navy would supply limes to their sailors so that they wouldn't get scurvy. And oh, so okay, they were called cool. limeys. Yeah. <laughs> but the answer is rickets for, for vitamin D. That's okay. the that's the deficiency disease for vitamin so D. So what exactly I guess is rickets? Yeah, so rickets is a disease that comes about when your vitamin D deficiency is low as a kid and your bone formation can't happen correctly. Okay. So you can get malformations of your bones, you get muscle weak, weakness, joint pain, and like these weird growth patterns where, you know, the limbs don't necessarily look like they should. Okay. So rickets is very rare because I mean, most kids are out in the sun. Like, you know, kids are generally outside yeah. more than adults. So it's unusual that you would find a kid to have rickets these days. Plus, you know, parents are all giving their kids vitamins and they drink milk and all that. Um, but if there was a vitamin D deficiency, that disease is called rickets. Can so in have, adults- Can you have like a, like be like predisposed to have rickets more so than other people? Like if your body doesn't like yes. metabolize vitamin D? Uh, I don't, like other people? Uh, there are some diseases that we're gonna talk about that, yeah. that yes, you can. Now as a child, I don't remember seeing any children's diseases specifically that run a high risk of vitamin D deficiency. I'm sure they exist because some adult diseases do and probably would translate, but it's just more rare that a kid would have these diseases, yeah. you know, because generally sure. kids are a little bit healthier. That's a great question. For adults, uh, if you have vitamin D deficiency, you can get fatigue, bone pain, muscle weakness, and also depression. I love when segments come full circle because remember when we did seasonal affective disorder? We, you we probably don't- kinda We touched base with- We did, D. yeah, exactly yeah. right. We talked about how if you, in the winter, there's not as much sun, your vitamin D levels can drop and then you can get depression mm -hmm. and that's actually I have a my one of my friends bought me for Christmas this little light. Oh right. And it's supposed to feel like sunlight. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we remember we talked about that that better. was a treatment for seasonal mm -hmm. affective disorder. Yeah. How do you use it? Yeah, I put it like in my office at my store. Nice. I don't have a window. 
So oh. like if I'm in there all day, like I yeah. don't see the windows or anything. I wonder if that light, does it, do you know if that light will cause vitamin D formation? Is it UVB? Probably not because UVB. I don't know. It's, I don't, it's from Amazon. It, I don't think it was that like super expensive. Yeah, that's interesting. If it has UVB light, then that does stimulate vitamin D. Oh, okay. It might. We can, we'll have to look it up. Yeah. Anyway, I'm always I like by your it. score. I'll drop in and we'll take a look at it. <laughs> All right. Um, so how many Americans potentially suffer from vitamin D deficiency? Well, it's actually higher than I thought, you know, because I know I've been on here saying, oh, if you live in America, you know, you don't have to worry too much about vitamin deficiency. Well, I read some studies that said up to one third of Americans have vitamin D deficiency. Now, I think it's a lot of at-risk patients because we're going to talk about people that, you know, are more at risk. Um, but I was kind of surprised. So, um, and if you think your vitamin D levels might be low, like if you're in one of these groups or maybe you just, you know, hate the sun or whatever, yeah. your doctor can check your levels. That's an easy lab to draw. It's not something that's common, so you'd have to mention to them, you know, or maybe hopefully they would mention to you, like, uh, do you get out in the sun or, you know, do you think you get enough vitamins? I don't mm -hmm. know. But doctors can check that level. And as far as how much vitamin D you need, so like if you're thinking about it like in a, in a dosage, it's, it's either international units or micrograms. So for most adults, 600 international units, which is 15 micrograms. For if you're older, where you need that increase for your bone mass, it's 800 international units or 20 micrograms. So I do want to talk about the people who are most at risk for vitamin D deficiency, because if you know somebody that's in this group, yeah. if you want to be like a good friend or family member, you might just mention to them that these are the people that are more at risk for vitamin D deficiency. So postmenopausal women is one. They, they're, they're always, because you've heard of osteoporosis, right, mm -hmm. as women get older. Um, so vitamin D deficiency is very prevalent in that group. Anybody who takes long-term steroids, which is a lot of people, there's a lot of different diseases that require you to take steroids, which affects um, your vitamin D levels. Elderly people, once again, the older we get, you know, you need that vitamin Damn. D for bone mass. Or you don't go outside. Or you don't go outside. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons. People that are pregnant or breastfeeding, mm -hmm. like they're more prone to be vitamin D deficiency. Uh, the next one are diseases. People who have chronic kidney disease okay. or parathyroid disease. Parathyroid helps regulate calcium and mm -hmm. phosphorus. So people with those diseases tend to have a little bit higher risk of, um, of vitamin D deficiency. Uh, people who are obese don't, don't have as high level of vitamin, uh, vitamin D, so they're at risk. And we said it early, right at the beginning, African-Americans, because yeah. they have the darker skin tone. Or, you know, very dark Hispanic, you know, could be in that group as well. So lastly, I want to talk about supplements. Um, there's a huge market for vitamin D supplements. I, I think most people probably don't need them. Like, I'm not saying you have to run out and start taking vitamin D supplements. It's just, you know, this is the information. Be aware. You know, think about, you know, are you getting out in the sun enough? Mm -hmm. Are you in one of those high-risk groups? Um, if you are going to do supplements, there are generally two kinds. There's vitamin D2, which is called ergocalciferol. Mm -hmm. That comes from plants. And there's vitamin D3, which is cholecalciferol. That's the animal product one. The vitamin D3, the second one, is, is better. There's been a lot of studies that show that that one is more absorbed and helps yeah. increase your vitamin D. I think D3. I have a vitamin oh, you do? D3 gummy yeah. at my house. Oh, do you? Do you take, uh, you take a lot of supplements? or um, Sometimes. Yeah. It depends on, like, if I'm on a kick or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm always taking protein. Yeah. That's the only supplement I really take is protein powder protein, a lot. Yeah. But because yeah, you're working out. The other yeah. stuff, I'm. it's like when I think about it, I'm like, oh, that's a gummy. Yeah, it's like, you know, yeah, maybe just make sure my D levels are good today. Yeah, I'm bad about that. Like, I don't take any supplements, really. In fact, I, it was uh, I, one thing I did do this past week. I went to the doctor for the mm -hmm. first time in, like, forever. 
And so like, you know, actually he says in pretty good health. My blood pressure was really good. I don't normally check my blood pressure. I was like 110 over 70. It's like, it's pretty good. Cause I mean, certainly someone in my age could have high blood pressure. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've gotten prescribed blood pressure medication Oh, you before. did? Yeah. Was it like around pregnancy or? Um, well, I had preeclampsia oh, okay. towards the end of my yeah. pregnancy. But I got, I have a tendency to get really, really, really stressed out. Uh-huh. And, that and my blood, blood pressure, pressure yeah. goes up really I'm high. like a pretty chill guy. So like, I think the stress thing. Yeah. I don't think I have. I pretend to be chill. You pretend inside, to be? You I, seem very chill. Like inside. on the show, it's like, I feel like I'm the kind of the. <laughs> Yeah, inside I'm like a raging maniac, <laughs> and you just don't see it. <laughs> I guess I could see that. Yeah, I'm just uh, a good cover-up. <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I probably should get my vitamin D check. Although I'm out a lot. I like to be outside. I like to run, and like, I'm that guy that like runs like, you know, with no shirt on just to like scare everybody. Not to scare everybody, but I just like to get sun. Like, I do it because I like to, I don't know, I feel better if I have, like, not trying to like sun tan, but just... I mean, maybe subconsciously I'm thinking about my vitamin D, but like I like to get out in the yard and like, you know, get sun and stuff. So Well, it's natural. I'm probably okay. To want to be outside. Yeah. All right. I so vitamin it. D, I, I think it's a great topic. Um, you know, I guess the big take home from this segment is are you in those groups who are, are high risk? And yeah. if you are, it might be something you just check out, you know, talk to your doctor. So yeah, All I right. feel it's again, one of those things at the end of the day, if you're eating correctly and yeah. being healthy in general, you're not going to have it. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. I mean, yeah. most people in the United States are, I think in that group of one third who are deficient, it probably is a lot of these high risk patients, mm -hmm. like elderly people, they're not getting outside. They're not eating well. That kind yeah. Of stuff. The only thing I wonder about is I wonder if like the increase of like social media, electronics, all oh, of that totally. stuff has had an effect Absolutely. on the increase of I'm vitamin sure. D deficiency. I, it probably like is kids as well. Yeah, I mean, when I was thinking. a kid, I was outside like, mm -hmm. like all day. Yeah. That, I think about my daughter, my daughter, like her, her idea of fun is playing on her, her tablet with her yeah. cousin that's like in Houston. Mm -hmm. But I'm yeah. like, why don't you go outside? Cause like I was outside running barefoot, mm -hmm. getting into all kinds of messes. Times are different, man. Like, I mean, I don't know what to say. Like, my kids are the same way. Like, yeah. I mean, they're good kids, but they love to be, you know, they're indoor kids. I mean, yeah. we do go out. Like, in the summer, we do out a lot. Yeah, I make her go camping. Yeah. yeah. So. But, <laughs> all right, very good. Okay, so uh, I know a lot of times that I've just kind of mentioned about the fact that I do wound care. Yes. And then I was just thinking, I'm not sure we've ever done, like, a wound care segment. I mean, it's not something that's glamorous, but it's kind of interesting. So I wanted to do wound care 101 today. And so that's nice. That's a picture of the uh, facility I work at, which I'll talk about in a minute. So um, for doctors, plastic surgeons generally are considered the highest level for wound care. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that becomes of our surgical background. Most of us are trained in general surgery, which deals with wounds. And then plastic surgery is trained to either heal or close the hardest wounds. Like if somebody's in an accident and like the ER doctor and the general surgeon are like, I have no idea how I'm going to close this wound. Like that's when I get called. Like so for bad dog bites or crazy car wrecks, motorcycle stuff. Um, but the thing is, is like not a lot of plastic surgeons like to do wound care, like in a classic wound care type of setting. Mm -hmm. You know, they may take call in a hospital, but actual wound care, like in a clinic, there's almost no plastic surgeons like to do that. But I mean, I kind of like it. I like the challenge of it. Plus, like I do it in my hometown, and it's like for me, it's like one of the ways that like I feel I'm you know, giving back to my community because I mean, I love doing cosmetic surgery and it's super fun and it's artistic, but you know, is it like helping people medically fix a ton of problems? I mean, yes and no, it, it does help people. I but feel like it would be like 
something challenging and different. Yeah, right. It's challenging. It's different. I love the patients. Um, and so I've been actually director of wound clinics now for over 10 years, mm -hmm. which uh, that really makes me like one of the you know most highly skilled wound doctors around because one, I'm a plastic surgeon, too. I just have a lot of experience doing it. Uh, I worked at a really big hospital uh, for a long time doing it, and then I moved over to this place called Horizon Medical Center. Mm -hmm. And I really like Horizon Medical Center. It offers uh, us both an outpatient wound clinic, and then we have inpatient, because some people have wounds so bad that they need to come into like a facility. So this is like an LTAC, which is a step down from a hospital. Mm -hmm. And so it gives me the ability to cover all aspects of wound care that a patient might need. So if it's a simple wound, they can come to our clinic. If it's a severe wound, I can take them to surgery and then I can bring them back to the, uh, to the inpatient uh, there at the horizon and get them on the right track so they can get healed. So I do, I mean, I, you know, not toot my own horn, but I really feel like it's probably one of the best wound treatment places in the Metroplex just for all of the things that we have there. So, so I was just going to talk about like, what do we do there? Right. Cause like if I say I run a wound yeah, clinic, I was just about to ask like, what's like the, yeah, right. what are the type of patients that come in there? The most? Bingo. Excellent. So I love that question. So, uh, it does break down into like a couple categories that will cover most things. A lot of what we see, and, and these are some of the hardest wounds out there are, are what's called decubitus wounds, which the, the layman term would be a bed sore. Okay. You've heard of like bed sore, yeah. somebody's like, you know, really sick and they're like, you know, in, uh, in bed and they can't get up and they get these wounds on their backside. A lot of times they're pressure related because mm -hmm. when people are really sick, say like in an intensive care unit for weeks or months, they, they're not moving. And so that, that simple act of like laying in one position for long enough can actually kill tissue and then you get a wound. And the problem is with decubitus wounds or bed sores is they're always in bad places. If you're laying in a bed, it's oftentimes the sacrum, which is in between your butt cheeks, which is kind of a dirty area. You know, there's also the risk of, you know, urine and, and stool contamination. And if you're like in a sitting position, so say like you were in a wheelchair 24-7, it'd be your ischium, which is kind of like your, your butt bones, kind of more off to the side, mm -hmm. away from the sacrum. So decubitus wounds are probably the biggest thing I see there. It's a lot of elderly patients, yeah. you know, people who are chronically ill. They have a tough time just yeah. recovering from it's, wounds Yeah, it's just really sad. I mean, and yeah. then lots of paraplegics, so people who've been in accidents or had spinal cord strokes. We have a few quadriplegics that we see that are, you know, completely paralyzed, you know. Mm -hmm. So, par so I, I should tell it. So paraplegic would be paralyzed from like waist down where they can't walk, but they can use their upper body. And then quadriplegics would be paralyzed from like the neck down. Okay. And so those patients are very, very high risk for, for decubitus wounds. The next things we see a lot of, and this is something that, you know, even when I was in general surgery, never saw or thought of, is what's called venous stasis ulcers. Okay. So as we age, the veins in our legs start to, for lack of a better word, wear out. Okay. And they don't pull the blood out of our legs. Like the arteries push blood into our legs very strongly. And then if the veins can't bring it back out, what happens is the legs start to swell. And when the legs start to swell enough, the skin will start to break down and you get these really superficial wounds on the legs, basically from your knee down to your, mm -hmm. your feet. And they can be really, really severe. And a lot of times what will happen is if they're not treated properly, they'll get an infection and then the infection makes it worse. And you can literally like end up having to have an amputation if, if yeah they're... i've heard of that i've yeah. seen some of older relatives in my family yeah. they'll wear like those uh compression mm -hmm. socks to make sure that yep that's exactly right their legs are still circulating yep. correctly that's exactly right and some people just don't think to do that or they don't have the resources or maybe they can't put their stockings on or they don't know where to buy them 
And so we get a lot of patients that these will start to develop and then we will treat those for them. Uh, the other thing I see a lot of is complex surgical wounds. Mm -hmm. So this isn't a case of like, say someone has like a C-section and there's like a little breakdown and then they send them to me. I mean, I, I would see that, that'd be totally fine. But the wounds that I'm talking about are the more severe wounds. So a wound that potentially is complicated with something like uh, hardware on a bone, uh, or one thing I see a fair amount over there is necrotizing fasciitis. I know we've talked about that before just briefly, and we should do a segment on that because it's really interesting. So that's the flesh-eating bacteria. Yeah. You know, it's not common, but when patients get that flesh-eating bacteria, they will end up with the most massive wounds that you can imagine if they don't die because it's a very lethal, lethal disease. You know, this is a weird story. My yeah. dog got a wound on his um, paw uh -huh. and it would not heal. Really? And they ha he, he was at the vet for forever. I don't know if they ever found out if it was that bacteria, but it would not heal. Really? At so all. And did he, he had survive? to take, yeah, he okay. had to take water like baths. Yeah. Like yeah, we'll talk about treatment, this, but all that's, this stuff. sounds and good. He was in there for a month, and to this a day, month. yeah, it was expensive. To this day, his hand or his paw is yeah. like still ex not exposed, but like sometimes it'll raw, get like raw, yeah, yeah, and it'll open up. That's crazy. Do you, and you don't know what caused that wound to develop? No, I mean, yeah, I do. It was from putting his hand underneath a fence and like pulling oh, it out really so fast. Oh, so he kind of shaped from the skin off. Yeah, yeah, he was trying to get another animal. Or fur, I guess. Yeah, it. Yeah. It was bad. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would say it probably wasn't a necrotizing infection, uh, only because the fatality rate of something yeah. like that is sky high. And no offense to my veterinary colleagues, yeah. if the animal got necrotizing fasciitis, they're going to die. Yeah. Like, it, I mean, it's a all. Yeah. It, I, had, I mean, I don't think it was that either, but yeah. they were like, we're, we might have to amputate his leg. Yeah. And I was like, um, no, you're not. Do everything you can. You put him in those water baths and, you know. I bet that was expensive. It was. We had a dog that uh, we are old Doberman that passed away. God bless him because he was a great dog. Um, yeah, he was in the vet just for three days when he was kind of going downhill. And it was like a couple thousand dollars. Like it was expensive. Mm, yeah. It was bad. <laughs> Amazing what we do for our pets. Um, so the other thing I see or that we see now, I don't see these specifically, but diabetic foot wounds. So diabetics are very prone to get wounds on their feet. Yes. Now we have podiatrists, which are special doctors that just deal with feet, with feet issues. Mm -hmm. And so Dr. Richie Smith works with me. She's a great podiatrist. And so she sees all the diabetic foot, foot uh, ulcers at, at our facility. So, um, so that's the kind of things we see. A lot of bed sores, uh, venous stasis ulcers, very common, traumatic wounds, uh, surgery wounds, you see lots of those. And some of those are super interesting. I, I'll have to get like a collection of some photos that people would let me look, uh, show. I told you about the guy, there was a guy who got necrotizing fasciitis of his penis and his scrotum. Yeah. yeah, I ended up fixing it. Well, I didn't like recreate his penis or anything, but I, I, I got like, that wound healed. I treated it and then got that all closed. And um, I'll have to talk about him today because he was super, super nice. I was like, can I talk about your story sometime? He's like, yeah, sure. So I'll have to bring that up. It's pretty crazy pictures though. How do you get that bacteria? Well, it's actually bacteria that are normal bacteria, but the difference in the necrotizing infections, they get into the tissue planes that are avascular where your body cannot fight the infection and they start replicating in those fascial planes. That's why they call it fasciitis, because the bacteria is spreading yeah. on the fascia, the muscle. Yeah, because I mean, it's just like when you get a staph infection yeah. or MRSA, yeah. it's like that stuff's already on your skin. Right, yeah, there's a couple bacteria that are known for causing the necrotizing fasciitis, and, but a lot of times it's multibacterial. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's kind of just one of those things that can 
happen it's to anyone. Storm. It's a perfect storm, but it's just thankfully very, very rare. Yikes. The one thing to know about necrotizing fasciitis, not to spoil you know, the segment we're gonna do someday, is the hallmark of necrotizing fasciitis on physical exam is pain way out of proportion, which means someone might have like a little spot that just does not really look like it's anything, but when you touch it, they just scream. You know, right. it's, it's pain out of proportion is one of the hallmarks of necrotizing, and that's early. Because if it goes more than like a day or two without somebody doing something, they're dead. Like the mortality rate is 50% of patients that get treated. Patients who don't get treated, it's 100% mortality. It's crazy. Scary. <laughs> we'll talk about it. Oh. All right, so <laughs> back to the wound clinic. We do see a lot of the necrotizing fasciitis there. Um, so I want to talk about steps to get a wound healed. And I think there's a little bit to be learned about this because some of these things can be used on maybe a wound that you might get at home. And, and, and I always tell people, if you get a wound, it's always best to go talk to your doctor, obviously, but not everyone does that. And for minor stuff, kind of like when you burned yourself that one time when we were talking about it, like, like, yeah, you're not gonna like, burn. yeah, it's like, you're not gonna go to the doctor for that. So some of these like principles of wound care are actually very helpful for people who, you know, aren't gonna go or like say you're stranded out in the wilderness and something happens. So. So the first thing I do if I get a wound in the wound clinic or I get a consult in the hospital is I want to clean that wound of any dead tissue, any infection, and any areas that are hidden. So what hidden means is like if there was a small hole in a big tunnel, because those are very difficult to heal. Yeah. And that, that happens quite a bit. So one of the first things that I do for a wound is I'm going to, if it's not in good shape, is I'm going to debride it. And that could be something I do in the clinic or oftentimes I do in surgery. That's what I was doing this morning actually was a wound uh, patient uh, in the hospital. Uh, the next thing I want to do to get wounds healed is I want to fix any external factors that could be inhibiting it. So there's a couple things that really stand out. One is diabetes. Okay. So obviously I can't cure you of diabetes, but I can control your blood sugars. So if you're a diabetic and you have a wound and your blood sugars are 400, your wound is not going to heal. Yeah. But if you're a diabetic and it's under control with either medicines or insulin, then your wounds, your wounds can actually heal. So diabetes, smoking is a big one. Smoking constricts your small blood vessels and it really, really inhibits wound healing. So if you have a wound or you know, a family member has a wound and they're a smoker, they really are kind of putting up a roadblock on themselves to, to heal. Uh, the last thing would be if there's any arterial issues. And so this is more for like wounds on the lower extremities or the feet. Mm -hmm. A lot of times as we age, just like our heart can get blockages, our arteries and our legs can get blockages. And so the blood flow is diminished to where the nutrients can't be sent down to the wound to heal it. So when we see patients with extremity wounds, mostly lower extremities, so like feet or lower legs, we'll run studies to see if their blood flow is okay. And I've had plenty of people come in with a wound that they say, oh, I've had this wound for a year and it won't heal and then come to find out they have arterial blockage we send them over to get that fixed and then suddenly their wound heals i mean cool. that, that happens all the time uh, the next thing you want to do is stop any contamination so this is mostly when talking about um, more like pressure wounds like like bed sores a lot of these patients that are older have issues with continence like urinary continence and stool mm -hmm. so if you get a wound that's getting urine and stool contamination frequently I don't want to say you can't heal a wound like that, but it really, really makes it more difficult. Yeah. So there are things that you can do to control that. I mean, sometimes we have patients that are so infirm that we have to do things like get them a colostomy so that their stool is not, you know, coming out where it normally does. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes it just has to be done or, you know, you can't get them to heal. 
Next is you want to eliminate any swelling. So this is more for extremity stuff. Like if you have like a wound on your arm mm -hmm. and you have swelling for whatever reason, more commonly the venous stasis where the legs get swollen, like you, yeah. you were talking about your family members, you, you were, said the right thing, compression. And that can be, compression can be applied many ways. It could be like a stocking or an actual dressing, but that's one of the first things that you got to do if you have extremity wounds is you want to get that swelling out. Next would be avoiding pressure. So this once again goes back to like decubitus or bed sores. A lot of those are pressure wounds. You sit in one location, you don't move, that pressure kills the tissue and, and that causes the wound. That mm -hmm. same effect will also inhibit wounds from healing. And so okay. you wanna make sure that if it's somebody who has a pressure wound that they're offloading, you know, making sure that they're like shifting from side to side, either in a wheelchair or bed. Mm -hmm. This is something we have to teach patients that are paraplegic or quadriplegic, especially if they're, you know, more recently like that yeah. to take pressure off. Um, once you get all those things set up, then you can actually start the wound care. Now, I could talk for a full day about the different methods of wound care. There's a ton of products out there, but I will say that there are two things that we use most frequently. One would just be a standard saline or salt water wet to dry dressing. So you have a wound, you get some gauze, you soak it in saline, you put that wet gauze in there, you put a dry one over it, and you change that once a day. And that's a very, very effective way to treat wounds. And so like, if I was on a deserted island and you know, in the plane crash, I got a wound on my arm, I would take strips of cloth, I'd boil water, I would get uh, that water, put it on the cloth, put it in the wound, and then change that daily. And you could actually get a wound to heal out in the wilderness by just following that very simple method. It's very effective. The other thing that we use a lot is a vacuum dressing. Have you guys ever heard of that? Yes. You have? Oh, cool. So vacuum dressings are newer technology, came out probably about 20 years ago or maybe a little bit before that. Actually, it's a little bit before that, 25 years or so. So it uses a sponge in the wound to which you apply suction. And then that sponge tricks the tissues into replicating. It's, it has to do with the actual sponge pores. And when it's applied to suction, it causes those cells that it's in contact with to deform. And when those cells get deformed, they actually it, it makes them replicate. So it tricks the wound into like filling itself. It's really cool, it's great technology, we use it all the time. The other thing with wound care is whenever you're changing that dressing, you do wanna clean your wound with soap and water. I swear, there are so many even doctors out there that will tell people not to get a wound wet. And that is total nonsense. It is absolute nonsense. If you have a wound and you're treating it, cleaning it with soap and water is literally one of the best things that you can do. Because it'll get the bacterial count down, It'll get any you know, cellular debris out that's inhibiting mm -hmm. the wound. So cleaning with soap and water is very important. And then lastly, for our wounds, we consider is surgery something that they need? So can I just close this wound with some stitches? Do I need to put a skin graft on this? Can I, do I need to do a flap? And that's once again why I think that the wound program we have is so good because a lot of wound care facilities don't have a surgeon running it. Mm -hmm. So if they find a patient that needs those things, like, oh, now I gotta find a surgeon to send this patient to. And we can just, I can just do it myself. I just yeah. make the patients possible and take care of them, so. Wound Care 101, what do you think, Travis? I've never heard of the the other wound that you mentioned. I think Sarah said she had heard of it. Which one? Uh, what was that one that you had heard of just now, Sarah? Oh, the venous stasis ulcer? No, the suction. Uh, oh, the wound vac. Yeah, the wound vac. Oh, I'm, yeah. I've never heard of that one. Yeah, that's pretty new. Um, I think most people that are not. I didn't really know what it was. I yeah. just knew. You've heard of it, it. Yeah. yeah. Most people that are not in medicine, unless they had a family member that had one, would probably not know about it. It's just a more 
new advanced type of wound care that's actually very, very effective. Uh, we mm -hmm. use yeah. wound backs all the time at the wound clinic. Yeah. So like I have a I have another wound story. Bring it. I love wound stories. Uh, so my <laughs> ex Who says that? my ex got MRSA when okay. he was in basic training. Mm -hmm. And he came Where? Where did he get MRSA? In Georgia. No, I meant like where on his oh, body? Oh, right here. On a leg. Okay, so he had a MRSA infection on his leg. Okay. Yeah, so, and it was an infection. So, like, um, there was just a really, it was just, it looked like something had bit him. Mm -hmm. And it hurt really bad. Oh, like yeah. If like, he touched it or if mm -hmm. I touched it, it Painful. hurt really, really bad. So, I took him to the doctor and they're like, yeah, that's an inf that, that's a MRSA infection. Mm -hmm. And they just, like, literally dug yep, it, it out. Mm -hmm. And I had to clean that thing. So, you every, did some wound care. Yeah, I cleaned it every day. Nice. Um, Soap and water? I had to, yeah. And, um, nice. You did the right thing. What's that stuff that's in the blue? Hibiclin? Uh, Hibiclins, yeah. So, that's Hibiclin like an antibiotic. He had to Hibiclins his whole body every day so oh, that yeah. it wouldn't that spread. Really, so, I'll tell you They were, like, very, like, he needs to... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you guys have heard of MRSA, right? Yeah. Jelvis MRSA? I've not. Okay. All right. So I'm MRSA not. stands for methicillin resistant staph aureus. Yes. So staph aureus is a bacteria that we have on our body. Mm -hmm. We all have it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in the old days, all staph aureus was sensitive to penicillin or methicillin. Mm -hmm. And in the nineties, a new variant of staph came out that was resistant to penicillin. At the time, it was a big deal because there were not all of the antibiotics that we had today. And if you got a MRSA infection and it was bad, they couldn't treat it because there wasn't an antibiotic out to treat it. So MRSA was like a huge deal. Now, here's what happened. Over the next years and decades, MRSA completely replaced the standard staph aureus to the point now that every single person I think in America has MRSA. If I cold, I know I have MRSA because I work in a hospital, but even like babies who are born have MRSA because their parents have it. Mm -hmm. So when people say that they now have a MRSA infection, it doesn't mean what it meant 20 years yeah. ago because now everyone has MRSA. All, all infections these days are MRSA. It's, it's weird to find one that's not MRSA, but it's less important now because there are so many different back, uh, antibiotics that will treat it. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what, yeah. what they said. And so, like, I used to have to pack it, too. It yeah. Was, oh, yeah. They pack cut it. It. Mm -hmm. it was deep. It yeah. was, like, this deep in your right. So you packed it with gauze. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's, like, a wet-to-dry dressing. You yep. may not have had to put saline on it. Some of those packings have um, medications on them, like iodoform gauze is one. Mm -hmm. Is it Was it strip gauze that you yeah. use? Okay, it's probably out of form. Yeah, and then I had to wrap it up yeah. every single day. Look at you doing wound care. I'm going to hire you at the wound clinic. Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> good times, good times. Good times. <laughs> All right, moving on. So, you know I love to do topics that are in the news. And did you guys hear about this gas stove debate? No. I, like, I lightly heard of it. Lightly heard of I, it. Yeah, I lightly heard of it. Okay. So you know me, I'm always on social media just because I you know, do a lot of social media and I just want to keep up with the news. So this past week, there has been this raging debate about, of all things, gas stoves, which I find just comical. Yeah. Um, and it's become political now. Um, there's sides are being chosen in political parties of who's for or against gas stoves. Okay. Like, it's just kind of craziness. And so I was like... I wonder if there's anything to this, because I myself had never heard that gas stoves are potentially harmful, and I found that odd, being a, yeah. being a doctor and being someone who tries to keep up with you know things like this. This was kind of a new one to me. So 
obviously got to do a segment about it. Mm -hmm. So uh, it all came about because Richard Trumpka, who is one of the commissioners of the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, said that the federal government may, moving forward, ban gas stoves. Now, this would not be that they come into your house if you have a gas stove and rip it out. This would be for like new construction. Okay, okay. so like new houses. So, so I was going to ask you guys, do you, do you have gas stove? Trovis, do you have a gas stove? No, I do not. My yeah, grandma uh, does have a gas stove. Your grandma stove, has one. Yeah, my grandma has one. So we have gas stove in our house. And yeah, most like professional chefs. Yeah. Use. Oh, yeah. I've always heard gas like cooks better. I, without question. <laughs> I love, you guys know I love cooking. Or, yeah. I've to that. I, I love to cook. I like to cook too sometimes. Oh. I love to cook. <laughs> and so um, I would be lost if I didn't have a gas stove. Yeah. Like I hate cooking on electric stoves. Um, so in the United States, about 38% of homes have gas stoves. In some states, it's as high as 70%. Um, so they're, they're saying that gas stoves pose a risk because of the indoor air pollution, okay? And that there may be a link from the indoor pollution of a gas stove to childhood asthma. And so Trumpka actually posted a study. I think I took a picture of it. Trumpka's. It was a brand new study in the uh, International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. And the basis of this study said that gas stoves account for around 12% of all cases of childhood asthma. Now, you know how I am. If I see a study, I'm going to read it because a lot of these studies are not necessarily what I would consider quality or good studies. Mm -hmm. And I do have some serious concerns with the studies. I mean, the, the way the study worked is it looked at old papers first, and then it looked at states that had high levels of gas stoves and compared how high the childhood asthma was, and then tried to make the association that in states that had a lot of gas stoves, the children were more likely to have childhood asthma. And so there's a saying that we have in medicine or statistics or whatever that uh, correlation does not equal causation, mm -hmm. which means just because two things might happen together does not mean that A causes B. Uh -huh. And so I, I feel like that that's the case with this. You know, this is not a good study. A good study would be, I have a thousand homes uh, that have a gas stove that have a new baby, and I have a thousand homes that don't have a gas home that has a new baby. And then you calculated what percentage of those babies in each group got childhood asthma, then you could say, okay, that's a good study. It's looking specifically at the two factors that we want to look at and what's the outcome. So this study was not like that at all. And so the study is kind of weak in that. But also there's a lot of studies that came out before it that are that say that gas stoves either don't cause problems or they're inconclusive. So I have a little bit of question about this study. I, you know, I because I guess the thing is it's like, you know, should you be concerned about this? Well, I'm not going to tell you to be concerned or not be concerned. I'm not concerned. Like, I, I don't have, like, this big worry that my gas stove is causing my, you know, kids to get sick. Sounds made up. Or me to get sick. And so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, anytime there's combustion, there are products. So the things that they're worried about are carbon monoxide and nitrogen dioxide, that those things can cause, you know, asthma. And carbon monoxide can kill you. Like, it's, yeah. it's a deadly gas. Um, and so... Uh, you know, I just, I personally don't see the worry. I think that if you were concerned about it, like the ways that you could alleviate your concerns are one, 
turn on your overhead vent because almost everybody that has a gas stove has got a vent. I mean, I don't always use mine. I just use it like if I'm really kind of go it's getting a little heated. It's getting a little heated and like yeah. there's smoke coming up, you know, because most I just don't want to set off my smoke alarms. Um, but use your vent and then, you know, don't have kids. But so I wanted to like take a step <laughs> further or not. Don't have don't have kids in the kitchen. Like, I don't mean don't have kids. Don't have kids if you want a gas stove. Warning. Um, but I wanted to actually do like a little in-home study. So um, I, I, I was going to buy a spectrometer. They're really expensive. Uh, so I was like, well, I'll just buy a specific one. So I, was, I, was like, I can buy a carbon monoxide detector. I was going to buy a nitrogen dioxide detector, but they are they're in the multiple hundreds of dollars. Ew. But I bought a carbon monoxide uh, detector, and I wanted to see, because I wasn't sure what the answer of this was going to be, is my gas stove putting out enough carbon monoxide that I need to be worried? Now, Trovis, can we run that video but, but keep my mic on? Yeah, we can. Okay, let's run this video. All right, so this is my carbon monoxide detector. I'm in my uh, blazer right now. It started. I don't know if there's a little bit of volume. So I'm gonna. So the zero is carbon monoxide. 63 is the temperature. So as I get close to the tailpipe, you can see that number starting to rise pretty quickly. Like so, I get down close to it. It's 50. It's gonna go hundreds, two hundreds. So the numbers to know is like less than 100 is generally pretty safe. Mm. Over 200 is dangerous. Over 800 is lethal. All right. So this is a campfire. This is my backyard. So zero. Now watch this thing as I get close to, the, to this campfire. All right, starting to go up, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. I couldn't get close enough to the fire. I, was, I had to move back because I was starting to get really hot. Mm -hmm. um, but like the closest or the highest I could get was about 70. Okay, this is my house. This is one burner of my gas stove. Zero. 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 So I was like, well, maybe it takes more than one. I couldn't get it to go off with one burner. I, I tried multiple angles, different things, no luck. So I was like, well, let me try all four burners at once. So here in a second, I'm going to swap. Oh, yeah, I was trying to see. Well, maybe the carbon monoxide's up here. I, I couldn't get it. I just. All right, so now I got all four burners running. You can see the temperature, 86 degrees. It's getting really hot. I, I put that thing everywhere. I could not get it to go off. It just was zero, zero, zero. And then I finally figured out how to make this thing go off. Like, it's going to show you here in just a second. And I had this thing here for like five or ten minutes. I, so this is like ten minutes later. It's so good the temperature's going. It's like 92 degrees now of me holding it above these four burners. And I had yet to get this carbon monoxide thing to go off. But I figured it out. What I had to do was actually hold the detector literally over the burner. Watch. <laughs> but as soon as I pulled it away, it went right back down. Wow. And so I could get it to go about as high as 20, okay. which means that if you put your face directly over a burner for like two or three days, you may or may not get a little carbon monoxide <laughs> effect. Like, you so know, that's, basically, that's, that's like the biggest raise right now, putting your face over the burners. For a couple of days, <laughs> yeah, everybody's start. doing it. Everybody's Everybody, doing it. Well, that's what it would take for you to get any <laughs> amount of carbon monoxide to potentially be an issue. So uh, that was kind of a fun little test because I really, I, I didn't know if, if potentially there was a lot of carbon monoxide coming off my burners. But I mean, as you could see, you get way more from like a campfire. Like yeah. that's it, like burning gas is pretty clean burn compared to burning like wood or leaves or whatever. But even like the campfire, you know, as I said, the numbers for carbon monoxide, you know, less than 10, completely safe. If you're like at 50 for more than eight hours at a time, then you're 
are starting to run a little bit of risk of having some symptoms. It's really over 100. That's kind of the limit for OSHA, like for work exposure. Like, you know, if you're getting exposed to less than 100 at work, like OSHA is not even going to really get upset about that. Mm -hmm. So even around a campfire, it's not that big of a deal. I would say, though, if that fire was burning in an enclosed space like this studio, that carbon monoxide would build up very, very fast. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, potentially deadly. Most people that die in house fires yeah. don't die from the flames. They die from carbon monoxide yeah. poisoning. But I, I really wish, I, I probably should have just bit the bullet. I would love to, if I'd have got a nitrogen dioxide tester and it didn't show anything, then I would say this study's total nonsense. Like, I mean, it's, there's nothing to be concerned about. But I don't know about the nitrogen dioxide, so you know, maybe that is an issue with these things. I, I just don't see it. You know, I, I would think that if this was an issue, you, you mentioned chefs mm -hmm. using gas burners. How many gas burners do you think are in a steakhouse burning? I mean, we don't see like chefs and line cooks going down from, you know, asthma. Let's I ask mean, Gordon Ramsay. We, maybe Gordon Ramsay will come on the show and we can ask him about it. I would love to have some good guests. That'd be awesome. We gotta start having guests. Travis, you know any famous people? Uh, I I don't I do not. Oh man. I do not. All right, we're gonna have to start making some. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I thought that was a really interesting thing. It was something I'd never heard of. When it came out, I was like, I gotta look into this. I have to say, and I'm not like a left-right person, so like I'm not saying that I don't think it's a problem because of any political affiliation. I'm really kind of not affiliated with any political party, not to get into politics at all, but I don't think it's a big issue. I just don't, yeah. I don't believe it. Like the research doesn't conclusively say that it's a problem. I think if you have a gas stove, you keep using it. I would, I am going to be pissed though, if like the government tries to ban those. Cause I mean, I have one now, but if I want to like move, Right. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen either. I mean, people. For that to happen, I feel like there would have to, it would have to be like a way more of a controlled experiment. Yeah, for them. I agree. I think people are just wanting to make waves and, you know, this Trumpka guy probably just, you know, needs some attention. So it's like, oh, we're he thinking about for, banning gas. Maybe he stoves. works for GE Electric. <laughs> probably. GE yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so. Electric is paying him off. Anyway, I thought it was kind of cool. It was interesting to talk about. I'm not going to be too concerned about it. So. Yeah. All right, I think that's about all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you so much for watching the show. If you have any questions about anything we talked about, please leave us a comment, and we'll see you next week on Nip Talk. Bye.